0: Hello, and welcome to the Dissing My Ability podcast. I am your host, Ken Meeker, Certified Professional Coach and the owner of Vitality Career Coaching. My guest today is a really cool guy. His name is Arthur Gwyn, and he has a really cool job, and I'm gonna let him describe what he does. So without further ado, welcome, Arthur.
1: Hi, Ken. No, thank you so much for having me on. So uh, my name is Arthur. I'm a big and tall white guy with way too much red hair, and I identify as neurodiverse. And I manage Lachi, who is a uh, recording artist and disability advocate. Uh, she's on the New York Grammy board. Uh, we just released a song with Evie Oddly and uh, Black Caviar. And uh, she is founder and president of the organization Ramp, which is recording artists and music professionals with disabilities. Um, and I get to kind of do all the cool behind-the-scenes stuff. So whether it's setting up her speaking arrangements or music performances, helping with the album release, uh, or even helping with the ramped organization itself to the web design stuff, I just get to be involved in all these really cool, awesome activities uh, that she gets up to and have really come to find that I've learned a lot about, you know, disability culture myself. And I'm just been it's been a real pleasure and honor to be part of this journey with her. Very cool, very cool. Yeah, uh, the the
0: new song is awesome. I love Black Caviar, by the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that like that was a that's kind of the icing on the cake with that one because I love Black Caviar. Um,
1: it's funny. We had a uh, so we had I don't remember when you said this was going to air, but um, we had a, a release party uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, one of the Black Caviar members showed up, and it's just they're really down to earth guys. Like you, you know if if you look up who the humans behind Black Caviar. Uh, there's just like two dads <laughs> in the DJ space uh, but they're really chill people and uh, they were such a pleasure to work with I mean Lachi's worked with a lot of different artists in the EDM genre and out of all of them they've just they really got their uh, uh, their chops down and um, have, have been awesome allies through the process so they're, they're cool people like behind the the brand. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't
0: surprise me at all. I mean, they have such a a put together sound, which is one of the reasons I really Mm -hmm. like them. Their sound is really crisp and just polished, which I respect, you know, as you and I've mentioned off air, I used to DJ professionally years ago, always have my ear very much in the EDM sort of space, even though I don't work in it necessarily anymore, but (laughs) I still love good music. I still love good music. That's for sure. Let's dive into, uh, Something that I I think it's a really important conversation to have around mental health and Mm -hmm. how that kind of intersects with disability. Because I don't think there's enough conversation in that arena, how one can tie into the other. And oftentimes with the neurodiversities, how that can lead to other things happening in somebody's life that can be detrimental in your own experience, how has being neurodiverse sort of played out over time?
1: Sure, yeah. So first of all, I might ramble a little bit if I do beat me with a stick, but it's uh, <laughs> <That's> okay. <laughs> it's it's been the topic I myself have really still in exploring. I mean, you know, if you had met me six months ago, I I would not have given, you know, my neurodiversity identity as as part of my introduction. Like it's something that I've always been taught to keep close to my chest. You know, as as a kid growing up that thought differently than how I was quote unquote supposed to, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, generally speaking, mental health was really more trying to shove me back into a box that I'm supposed to belong in. And whether that was through medication or therapy or, you know, psychiatrists and such, it it was mostly, in my opinion, detrimental (laughs) to my well-being. And uh, I spent most of my life trying to hide that part of myself, very much stuck in a medical model of that there's something wrong with me and it's my burden to bear uh, and if I want to succeed in this world, I need I do everything I can to fit everyone else's expectations for how I'm supposed to behave. And something that I'm trying to come more to terms with, and especially to be able to kind of communicate it in public, I mean, honestly, this is the first time I'm really talking about it in a public space. I think the thing that has been most disabling to me about my neurodiversity isn't that I'm, I might think or process things different than other people. It's more than just that childhood trauma of having such negative interactions with mental health care Mm -hmm. and the kind of fear and, and honestly shame that has been baked into my experience, like growing up that, that has been more disabling than my actual neurodiversity itself. And if there's been any, real monumental change in my life recently, it's been embracing the neurodiversity side and allowing myself to be myself in the workplace, in public, in private, rather than trying to continue to fit a mold that was never cast for me. Now, I've had a a lot of conversations as I've been kind of doing this work with Lachi. I get to meet with all sorts of leaders in the disability space from all stripes of, and forms of disability. And the conversation that I've been having specifically around neurodiversity and mental health is, uh, I mean, first and foremost, there there is kind of a division between mental health and disability, right? They're not yeah. necessarily meeting in the, in the Venn diagram of experiences. Correct. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's, Everyone has their own journey to go through. But I just, if there's anything that I think we can be doing as a culture to make this a more inclusive space for those invisible disabilities, for whether it's a mental disability or learning disability or neurodiversity, whether that's, you know, being on the spectrum or ADHD or some of these things that, you know, culturally we don't even necessarily consider to be. Um, a disability, you know, people offhandedly say, oh, I have, so, I have OCD because I, you know, do this or that little thing, or I like a clean house. i must have OCD is. Well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, we all kind of understand and identify with some of those things. And I'm hearing more and more conversations, especially out of the younger generation. I, and maybe it's just because, you know, the medical field has progressed, or maybe parents are more aware of, of how to, to deal with it. Um, that they're being a lot more open and talking about it. And I think that we should be doing that more as a culture as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I wholeheartedly agree. You know, you said a few things there that I, uh, uh, that I really think are important, you know, disability and neurodivergency are not, you know, they're not the same thing, but one can definitely be tied into the other, you know, cause you know, it's a being neurodivergent is a big umbrella. Um, And within that, there can be, you know, learning disabilities and, you know, uh, autism and all kinds of all kinds of other things like, you know, uh, I I don't know if I would necessarily put depression in there, but, you know, anxiety and all kinds of uh, all kinds of things can be tied in with, you know, mental health as well. And disability can certainly fall under that umbrella, too. And so by discussing it in a in a broader sense of you know neurodivergency and yes you, know, you said have the trauma from your you know when you were young about having to hide and not being able to uh, be yourself and being put into a box i would consider that disabling because you couldn't show up mm-hmm. authentically and be your true authentic self and while that may not be you know quote unquote disability that's disabling
1: Right, and I, I, I'm, I'm still not quite sure how to kind of sound soundbite that, right? But I do think it's a point that that we should be discussing more. I, I don't know, because like I had to come to it on my own. There's yeah. not a lot of of discussion out there specifically around kind of like the the medical gaslighting, really. That at least my generation, you know, I'm a millennial, and so it's like they had all these. I I don't. You know, maybe I really should go back if I'm going to be speaking as a voice for neurodiversity, maybe I should do a little bit more research on this, but I'm just the way that they were just pumping pharmaceuticals into my generation to try to fix problems that weren't necessarily problems. Yeah. I mean, your uh, I experience is always question.
0: valid. You know, that's the thing is I'd go back to, you know, you can only speak to your your own personal experience and that's all any of us can ever do. And it's always valid to whatever your experience is. So I would say don't sell that short. <laughs> Sorry, I kind of interrupted you there. So I just I just wanted to make that point that, you know, your experience is always valid, especially especially here. Um, oh, yeah. No, I you know I
1: totally appreciate it. I, I mean, it's like you said, I mean, it's the, the thing I've really come to is embracing your authentic self. Right. And like that doesn't mean don't treat ignoring mental health, right? Someone had said a quote recently, and it was, um, it was actually in response to, you know, the whole Kanye debacle, which is that mental health isn't a burden, but it is a responsibility. Yes. If you identify within yourself or or with the help of a medical professional that you've got an issue, you should address that issue to the extent that you feel it needs to be addressed, right? Like whether it's medication or therapy, I, I myself You know, I don't know if this is the vibe of your podcast, but like I'm a strong proponent for marijuana legalization. That's how I personally self-medicate, but uh, I also go to therapy and, you know, those two combined have given me a place where I can succeed and operate through life and being kind of open about even just talking about therapy. I mean, there's so much cultural opposition to seeking therapy Mm -hmm. that it's ridiculous and it's kind of the opposite side of that, right? They're either pumping yeah. you full of medication um, with a with a you know uh, psychiatrist, but then you're not going to the therapy. Yeah. Or people are seeking or doing nothing and just rejecting the whole thing because they cultural apprehension to therapy or mental health. It's like admitting you have a problem means you are a problem. That kind of thing. Yeah. And um, it's just like the whole thing needs to be turned on its head. And it's like, how do we dismantle this distrust? I mean, the distrust yeah. is for a reason, especially in a lot of, you know, certain communities. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I don't know. It's a big problem. but I think the first thing to do is really just to be talking about it and seeing it, examples of people embracing the, their identity and being open about it, so that we can just normalize being not "quote unquote" normal. <laughs> exactly. Well, what is normal?
0: You know, it's all it's <laughs> it's entirely subjective. Having the conversations, I think, is one of the most important things. That's one of the reasons I started this podcast is just to have important conversations about our own lived experience, you know, with disability or disabling conditions. You know, mental health is a huge thing. I'm very open about much therapy has benefited me personally. I I firmly believe it saved my life. And Mm. I am a huge advocate for I think everyone would benefit from therapy at least some point in their life, because we all have crap we have to deal with at some point in our lives. And I just know that without therapy, I probably wouldn't even still be here. And there's nothing wrong with asking and seeking out help when you are in distress. And when you need it, there's nothing that it doesn't make you weak, it doesn't make you less than it is. I think it's a strength to say, you know, I can't handle this. Mm -hmm. I need help. That's There should be no sense of shame in saying that. And I don't, you know, I just did a, a, a recorded a podcast just the other day with a good friend of mine where we sort of talked about, well, not sort of talked about, we did talk about anxiety and mental health and depression and how important it is to not be afraid to seek the help that you need. And there's no shame in saying, I'm not okay.
1: I gotta say too, it's not necessarily just waiting for there to be an emergency, right? Yeah. 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 Get the oil changed. There, there is a, first of all, I'm in New York, right? And if you, if you live in New York City or not seeing a therapist, you're, you're not going to last long here anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much everybody here is seeing therapy of some kind. And I'll say too, we're privileged here where if, uh, if you need assistance, you can, you can get it no matter your economic level, no matter what stage of life you're in, the city has resources. And that's not true across the country. I mean, some people don't have an option to find therapy, or maybe just emergency therapy, like there's a lot of, you know, hotlines, suicide hotlines and stuff like that. But it's like, if you're already at that point, that's several steps away from where you could have been if you were getting consistent access to mental health services and and therapy. Very true. Very true. Um, And so I think that's kind of another component to it. It's like a lot of times we're thinking of it as like this last ditch. It's like, okay, I it's like I'm either gonna, you know, face something horrible or I'm gonna finally seek therapy out. And it's like yeah. it really should be a first level option. Just like getting your teeth cleaned at the dentist every six months. Yeah. I was just about to say that, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. You don't want to wait till it's a problem. Exactly. So it's yeah. um it's the same kind of thing in in my mind. But even there, I mean I mean I just mentioned I'm in New York City just right now, you know, the mayor is putting forth an order that they're going to start picking up people with mental health issues on the street uh, forcibly and putting them into uh, like forced hospitalizations. It's like, that's not good either. You know, I mean, yeah. there's a point point. it's like on the one hand, someone that needs help that completely rejects it to the point that they're living a detrimental life needs some kind of help. And assistance, but sweeping people off the streets and shoving them into mental health facilities is a process from ages past. And it's a very slippery slope uh, when we take autonomy away from people. Yeah. So I don't quite know where the line is, but I feel like that's on the other side of it. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. That's
0: you don't help people by inflicting trauma on them. Mm hmm and that definitely is what that seems like it would do is all oh, right well, here we're going to take you and we're just going to shove you in this place and you're welcome you know right. i guess <laughs> i and, don't think that that it, that's right i don't it think it's built that
1: in that's mistrust right. again of the medical yeah you know scene i mean like you know again for a long time you know i was told if i say that i'm having suicidal thoughts and that triggers a bunch of actions that are beyond my control, right? Yeah, and so yeah. I didn't learn how to manage suicidal thoughts or learn not to talk about it. Yeah, um, yeah. And that too, it's just like, that fear, that mistrust and that that trauma that's been built into the what's really meant to help people. It's kind of irreversible. Once it's implanted in somebody, it's really hard to root that out.
0: Yeah, that distrust, you know, something, I'm sure you've, you're aware of this, people call the authorities because somebody who has mental illness of some sort is they're having an episode of some sort. And so the police get called that person then gets arrested and we need to not. recognize mental health that, that, you know, it, it's not a crime to have mental illness.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's the, the criminalizing of it. I mean, there was a discussion a couple of years ago about shifting away from having Uh, again, I think this was more local to New York city, but I believe the conversation was had elsewhere, um, around replacing police coming out for, um, uh, welfare checks and instead having, you know, like, uh, uh, what do you call them? Social, uh, social workers or, uh, people more trained to deal with people that are having a mental health. Yeah. episode and it wasn't because like oh it'll be more effective to treat them really it was more because the cops often react with violence
0: yeah yeah so and yeah and you color. need crisis management is what you need not police showing up with guns
1: exactly and it's just again I mean the more we reinforce seeing these stories of someone doing a welfare check for their child that's out of control or for you know I mean if it's you know, we have some stories from the city, like there was, you know, the guy with a machete in the subway. Sure, maybe the cops should show up for that. Uh,
0: yeah, before.
1: yeah <laughs> I mean, the time, um, it's not that. It's a crisis. and yeah. and it's being treated as as a criminal a cr- criminality instead. And yeah. so we're criminalizing mental health, and that's the worst way to. Get- to, to turn around and say, oh, also you should seek out, you know, services. It's like, as far as I can tell, those services is a cop with a gun, and that's not going to get us anywhere.
0: On one end, there's the encouragement, oh, you know, their mental health matters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if you are ever in a place of crisis or you you actually are, you know, if you're in that place where you need that help, well, we're not going to help you then. We're just going to, we're going to mm-hmm. arrest you. How does that help people to, have faith you know the overall system is there to help them if the people who need it the most are being criminalized
1: right yeah you know, it,
0: does, it doesn't impart a, a whole lot of faith
1: 100 percent. and i think part of that too builds off you know when we hear about these things it's fought in public i mean like there's the reason the mayor is making this move is because people want the crazy people off the street yeah quote yeah right or when we hear about these negative altercations with the police, uh, there's that other side saying it's like, well, you know, no, I don't want social workers showing up because this person might be violent. Like, what are they going to do if it goes wrong? Yeah. And I I think a lot of that is that kind of alienation of, of mental health, that otherness, that otheringness of it. Yeah. That, I mean, that's not unique to, you know, the mental health world. That's also that kind of otheringness of disability culture in general. Yeah, absolutely. The best way I can think of to combat that is awareness. And, mm-hmm. and I don't mean like be aware that these people exist. I mean, literally folks standing up and kind of saying it. Yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm privileged where I am right now. Like I'm working full time with Lotsia. I'm in this disability space. And so I get to be my authentic self in a way I've, I've never felt so unencumbered to do so before, but even in just kind of a corporate world, someone that is seeking therapy, that is trusting the the healthcare system, I think it would be an important step if people start embracing that identity publicly in the workplace, not just for accommodation purposes, but just identity purposes. And letting people understand that, you know, I don't know how else to say it, but like, we're people too, like, you know, the people with all sorts of neurodiversities or generally going through mental health care are all across this nation and all levels of employment, but there's no culture whatsoever of, of accepting that. Like, yeah, whether it was instilled by my parents or not, if I had gone around in the corporate world saying, Hey, I'm neurodiverse, there would have been a, a lot of cases where that would have been really detrimental to my career. But I think that's that's more a reflection of the people I was working for rather than saying that it's it's wrong or you know the wrong yeah. move being open about yourself.
0: yeah, I agree. I agree. I think you know we need to move away from trying to fit everybody into this this box of of what normal is or isn't. and the only way to do that from my perspective is to. Be open and authentic and have these conversations, which can sometimes, you know, for some people, you know, they can be uncomfortable sometimes because it's for a lot of people, they might be new, they may not be aware. And so the more that people can show up, show their value, you know, especially within the workspace, like being neurodivergent or having a disability, those can become your superpower when you are able to show up authentically and embrace them for what they are. Up until the 60s, even, you know, if, if people had any sort of disability, they were sent away. And there's a movie called Crip Camp that I think everybody should see that's about sort of the disability movement and how the disability movement, you know, resulted in the ADA passing and all that kind of stuff. But there's footage of the institutions where they used to send people that had disabilities, mm-hmm. whether it be they were blind, whether they were needed a wheelchair. It's, a tr- it's atrocious. Fortunately, the pendulum has swung a little bit, you know, within within the disability sector. But mental health is kind of still in that place where it's not discussed openly enough and where they should be comfortable saying who they are and being their their true self.
1: I think it's even more than just comfort. I mean, at the end of the day, the businesses that are succeeding right now are those that are embracing diversity of thought. in the workplace right like having a team of diverse leaders or participants just it it adds to the breadth of knowledge that you're going to be able to bring out i mean so we talk Mm -hmm. about for disability in general having someone with a disability on your team opens up you know making sure that everything you're doing is accessible it opens Mm -hmm. up making sure that the disability community which is a quarter of this nation uh has some voice in the decisions that are being made and there's, there's some thought being given to the needs of that community um, and I think it's the same thing with with neurodivergence. At the end of the day, you know, I think differently, but mm-hmm. by and large, that's been an asset. It's one of the reasons why I have been successful. Um, and that's why I say I think there's a line between it's like the so what has been disabling for me has been more the trauma rather than the neurodivergence.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's the attitude towards it.
1: Right. And so if I can embrace my full self in the workplace, that means I get to use my full suite of resources and skills unfettered from being worried about spending 90% of my time pretending to be something else. Now I can spend all that time and and brain effort on the task at hand and and yeah. just do my job even better. And same thing with accommodation. I mean at the end of the day, I've one of the things I learned during COVID is I am much, much better working from home. Like it takes all the distractions out. I'm not a very social person. And I just, my productivity shot up like a rocket when I started working from home. And I think it's just a mistake that businesses are forcing people to go back to the office. I think a lot of people have discovered this about themselves, Yeah, that they don't need to be in the office every day. And trying to drag everyone back into an old paradigm that really is nothing anymore about either control or maintaining. I mean, there's a whole like real estate argument for why they're trying to force people back into these buildings, at least in the city. I mean, yeah. I know there's like a there's a tax do hickey thing about having a filled office that they're trying to meet. And it's like if that's the only reason they're doing this. Yeah.
0: But no, I, I hear you. Accommodation
1: I, is enabling. It, it gets people to to be their better selves. And whatever accommodation somebody needs, it's a trivial trivial expense uh, in return for increased productivity from your work
0: your workplace I agree I agree you know the companies that are the most successful the most innovative are those that are the most diverse the data absolutely mm-hmm. supports that from a business perspective it makes sense to encourage diversity to welcome it empower your staff to be their full authentic selves because that will make your business, more successful and and more profitable, more innovative. And if you're in business, even if you're a nonprofit, your goal is to stay operational. If it helps your business to be more successful, why wouldn't you want to go that route mm-hmm. of, of inclusivity and allowing people to be their authentic selves?
1: And I do think that it's slowly but surely. I, I feel like there is some some real kind of meat in that direction these days yeah. and it was a little surprising uh cuz you know before I was working with Lachi, i was in executive employment i worked for the the ASC which is like a trade association for um executive search mm-hmm. and so i was really exposed to kind of like the the top of the top of how these employment decisions are made and god it's archaic <laughs> like they're still trying to, they're trying to get women on boards is there big diversity push yeah like it's not even talking about race much less uh you know disability you know outside of um the fortune the fortune at 500 i think they're called yeah uh there's really no one in the space for disability right now and it's no. not even part of the conversation yeah but, um we were at disability in in july um and they do the uh disability quality index uh-huh um, and we got to meet with a lot of kind of the DEI heads from Fortune 100, Fortune 500 firms that were in attendance. And, you know, I've always seen kind of DEI as more of just like a aperture of HR, of yeah. just like a, kind of a new face over looking at diversity as an expense line, which yeah. is generally how HR uh, approaches it. Yeah. Um, but no, these people were here for change. They were yeah. here to, to bring in. They weren't necessarily all focused on disability as like a center focus, but they were there to jump on this idea of bringing disability into the fold because they're already in that headspace of let's bring in diversity. Yeah. Let's build up diverse teams and make sure that our business is accommodating to, you know, all walks of life. And then disability... I, I, I don't know if it's a cultural thing or if it's just there just simply isn't enough disabled employment yet. Like it's not it doesn't feel like it's going to be yet another fight. I think yeah. it's really kind of embedded into the DEI conversation and it's really almost up to the disability community uh, to make these inroads and connections uh, to make sure that it continues to be part of this growth, but it, it feels like a real actual fundamental change is happening in the DEI space. And um, that was really invigorating to learn. And in smaller companies, it pretty usually is because right. they just right. don't have the
0: resources to separate it out. But once you get into those larger organizations, it really needs to become its own animal because it's different than HR. It's mm-hmm. it's related, of course, because of compliance and you know, all that type of stuff. But diversity and inclusion in those initiatives really has to be you know it has to start at the executive level and then work its way down in order for it to be effective and you know companies like chase and you know, I'm not trying to plug anybody but I was on a panel with with one of the top people from chase and their diversity and inclusion team and they've been around for 15 years they've been they've been plugging away at this chipping away at it trying to do the right thing for diversity and inclusion and they're a massive company and they've done a lot of inroads But even after 15 years, they still don't have it right. So, of Mm -hmm. course, it it takes time. And the bigger the organization, the longer it's going to take. But the thing that I think that's important to focus on are the organizations that really are trying to expand the envelope of who they want to recruit and who they want Mm -hmm. to be on their team and that there's channels for that to happen, you know, like if you need um, an accommodation, who do you contact? Is there is, is there somebody who's equipped to handle that accommodation instead of just denying it? Mm-hmm. You know that Those are the conversations that <clears throat> need to happen more often. And, you know, cause a lot of my work that I do is with diversity training, but I try to focus more on small businesses because I think that that's where the greatest impact can happen because most businesses in this country are small businesses and they don't have HR departments.
1: <laughs> right. I mean, and listen, so if I've got any learnings from looking at the bigger ones and how it could apply smaller, uh, I mean, first of all, if you want a fundamental difference between HR and, and DEI, so H, an, H, an HR approach to disability. If they do like a presentation on it, right? It's a don't get us sued presentation. Yeah, yeah. Right, and so yep. I, I forget what they call it. The sensitivity training, right? So sensitivity training is all about don't say something that will get our company sued. Yeah, that's how HR. Yeah, DEI. It's... Their approach is to bring in someone that can talk about culture. they yeah. talk about inclusion, and it's not about accommodation per se. It's about treating you know your fellow employee. As a fellow employee, despite whatever makes them different. Yeah. It's and, about culture, about culture. And exactly. And and that can be done at a much smaller scale. Like, yeah. you know, whether you have an individual in charge of HRDI or not, just keeping mindful of like building up the diversity of culture within your organization um, is far more impactful and powerful than just getting someone a, a big screen because they have low vision, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. um I'll say too, the other really cool thing that I've been learning is is uh this whole ERG thing, uh, employee resource group. Saw, uh-huh. Yep. Um fascinating, fascinating work being there. And it's like I mean I at the end of the day I'm managing a pop idol, right? <laughs> but I'm talking to these really wonky ERG, you know, groups um with the, with these various companies and they are really kind of getting up to stuff cuz at the end of the day it's collectivism within yeah. organization and you know sometimes they have a very slow drip of resources being granted to them but they've been very uh sharp on picking up those resources and multiplying them where they can yeah and it's like every inch they get they they don't give it back and i i don't know i think it's a fantastic movement um I, I'm really interested to see where that's going to kind of end up going as it, it picks up in popularity and, frankly, power. Yeah. And I've also been seeing ERG groups from different companies working together, or different ERGs within a company working together. Um, and it's just, there's nothing more powerful than collectivism, and it's just—it's really cool to see it at the corporate level. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. They're—they they're, can
0: really be. Uh you know or they can really create change within an organization um mm. when they're taken when they're taken seriously by the powers that be so to speak and when companies listen to the their employees and the people that make them successful at the end of the day and focus on what empowers their employees to be their best selves to do the work that they do uh Those companies are the most successful over, you know, over time, Mm -hmm. because that's the kind of companies that people want to work for, you know, um, years, you know, I might be getting a little off topic here. But years and years and years ago, um, when uh, benefits to same sex couples started to be introduced back in the 90s, um, for a long time, I worked in the insurance industry, which is overall a, a fairly conservative industry. It's like banking. Right. But they want to acquire the best talent. And in order to do so, you have to offer the best benefits and a try, to try and entice people over to, you know, work for your company. And insurance companies were some of the very first companies to offer same-sex benefits for, like, healthcare care mm. plans and all that kind of stuff, which is kind of, you know, uh, against the grain for, you know, thinking of conservative thinking. Um, but it just goes to show that on for companies to, in order to be the best and acquire the best people, broadening your umbrella of who works there is the best route to go. And it just makes sense when you kind of dive into it, that diversity is good <laughs> for business.
1: A hundred percent. I mean, especially this day and age with the, the so-called great resignation, I mean, yeah. I mean we're seeing, you know, tech employment just get what they chopped like what 30 40,000 employees yeah. in the past couple months. Yeah. And um, when it goes when you turn back around to try to reacquire all that amazing talent that's been left on the table, um, making where you work a desirable place is includes that inclusion side of yeah. it, right? Allowing exactly. people to from the day one, from like day 0 during the interview process being made to feel included and accepted regardless. And they just want you to come in and do your job and do yeah. it well. Yeah. Um, that's that's how you're really gonna be getting people to to join and attract talent in this day and age.
0: Yeah, um, agreed.
1: Don't think it's about the money and everyone hates health insurance. And least-
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you know, one of the things that you had you, you touched on earlier is, you know, having to hide and not show up as your full and authentic self and just the amount of resources and the amount of bandwidth that that takes on a personal level mm-hmm. and the the resources that you have to, you know, hide and not be yourself. Think of how much energy that takes from somebody. And when you empower somebody to be themselves, that energy, those resources, that bandwidth that that employee has can be applied to something else and it can be applied to their work and just how much better they're going to be at their job if they are just allowed to show up as their authentic self.
1: Absolutely, 100%. I mean, you know... Circling back to, to Lachi, I mean, that's kind of the lesson that, that she actively proselytizes about. Is um, you know, coming from kind of EDM space where, you know, you're at a club with, you know, ten thousand people at two AM and someone waves at you and you don't wave back, that's the end of a deal.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know.
1: She was already rare in the industry as a black woman. She didn't want to add a further complication of, of being openly blind. And so she she hit it. And like her manager knew and dealt with stuff like uh, Gary Salzman, who unfortunately passed away during covid. Um, but, you know, he was really great with her uh, and and respected her desire not to to talk about it. But she was at a severe disadvantage in the workplace from trying to pretend to be something she wasn't. Yeah. And now that she's really kind of embraced that full self again. I mean, we we got to do this track. That was us. I mean, you know, she's usually a um a vocalist for other people's work. This is our song. And we got to just do all this amazing stuff. She's on the Grammy board, all these other things and all of that came out because she stopped spending so much energy hiding her true self. Yeah. Um and now she gets to spend all that energy on on creating and and doing all this stuff. And so uh, there's no there's no greater power in this world, I think, than being yourself, because what well, you're going to—you only get one life to live. You're going to live someone else's life your whole life. Like, why are you here? You know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Good. That's that's a great point, and that's I think that's a, a great a great point to sort of uh, end the conversation on. So, where can the audience um, get a hold of you if they are interested in learning more about the work you do or about Lachi, or uh, where can people find you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, honestly, I, I'm not, uh, too public. Maybe with a podcast like this, maybe, I will. <laughs> um, generally speaking, uh, I'm always working in the background with, with Lachie. So you can follow Lachi's stuff at, at Lachi music across all social. Um, you know, we'll see if we'll still be on Twitter, but we're everywhere else. And, uh, you know, I'm on LinkedIn myself. Uh, I'm also happy to be on Reddit. Uh, I, it's funny. I, I did a lot of work on Reddit. I, I do Lotsie's makeup. I learned how to do that during COVID because her, her makeup artist left. And now I'm actually pretty dang good at it. And I, <laughs> I have reps to thank for that. So of all That's social cool. platforms to plug, there's one. Um, but, uh, you know, our website is Um I also make her canes. She has super glamorous canes that we make out of rhinestones and glitter. Yep. I've seen Um them. and I actually make those and I sell them at, at glamcanes.com. So that's also right. a fun resource if, if anyone wants to there's a
0: good plug. I know lots of, I know lots sparkle. of people with uh with, with that are blind and with visual impairments. So I yeah, definitely plug that one. What was the website again? Glamcanes.com. All right. Or you can that's... also do it from from her website. Yeah. Okay, cool. Awesome, awesome. Uh, thank you so much for um coming on and um being my guest and having this great conversation about a topic that I uh, firmly believe needs to be discussed more openly and whatnot, because it can save somebody's life quite literally, I think. So thank you very much for, for coming on and being my guest.
1: No, and thank you very much, Ken, for, for inviting me. This has been great. Of course, of course. This has been the
0: Dissing My Ability podcast. I am your host, Ken Meeker. Please remember to subscribe, uh, like, and share. And as always, be kind to others and to yourself.